open your Bibles to Psalm 117. Psalm 117. The title of this song, Psalm, is Let All Peoples Everywhere Praise the Lord. Let's read this psalm. It's this, this psalm, the, the psalmist wrote this psalm. It's the shortest psalm. And in three sentences, he reached out the whole, to the whole world. This psalm is an invitation to people everywhere to turn to the Lord and join with believers everywhere in praising him. So let's look at the psalm, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So that's it. We're done. But uh, no, just, <laughs> you know. But when you look at that psalm, there is a terrible temptation to pass it over. You think, well, it's only three verses. It doesn't say very much. And you can pretty much, you know, figure out as you read it what it says. But, you know, it's something that's important to remember. There's nothing in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that is not that that is there that is not, you know, worth reading. The Holy Spirit put it there for a purpose. And our, our duty is not to decide what we want to read, but to read it and learn from it and see what God is, what God wants to say to us. It's, it's short line or outline goes like this. First of all, there's a call for the nations to praise God in verse one. Second, there's a list of reasons for the nations to praise God in verse two. Now, the theme is another reason for praise. God's love for the whole world. And we should praise God for his unlimited love. The author, we don't know who it is. The author is anonymous. But this is another Hallel psalm, a praise psalm, a hallelujah psalm. It's the shortest of the Hallel psalms. Now, remember the Hallel psalms, Psalms 113 through Psalm 118, were sung at the three great feasts of the nation of Israel. They were sung at the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. At the Feast of Passover, the cup was passed seven times. And between each passing, those who were gathered there would sing one of these hymns. Now, some commentators say that Psalm 113 and 114 were sung before the meal. And then Psalm 117 and 118 were sung after the meal. But here's the thing. It really doesn't matter in what order they were sung. The important thing is, is that they were sung Psalm 118 was the psalm they sang. Matthew 26, 30 tells us, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, this isn't just the shortest psalm in the book of Psalms. It's the shortest chapter in the whole Bible. And like I said a minute ago, because it it is, there might be a tendency to say, well, you know, I'm not going to spend much time here. I mean, even if you read it, you're not going to spend much time reading it. But, you know, there's not much time, spend much time in studying it and, and maybe even passing over it. But again, these are important verses. And we shouldn't hurry through them. We shouldn't hurry through any of the Word of God. Again, that goes for every part of the Scriptures. There's nothing in the Bible that's not important to us. Even though it's short, it has a lot to teach us. Think of this. In Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms, which is called the Treasury of David, 
Spurgeon quotes G. Rogers, who found five profound doctrines in this psalm, in these three verses. The calling of the Gentiles, the summary of the gospel, the end of, the, uh, the end of so great a blessing, the employments of the subjects of the great king, the privileges of these servants. Martin Luther dedicated 36 pages to this little psalm. He explained it in four important categories. First, prophecy. The Gentiles will participate in gospel blessings. Second, revelation. The kingdom of Christ isn't earthly and temporal, but rather heavenly and eternal. Third, instruction. We're saved by faith alone and not by works, wisdom, or holiness. And fourth, admonition. We should praise God for such a great salvation. A good understanding of this psalm will help us to appreciate it for at least four privileges that belong to you and I, God's people. The first two we find in verse one and two, uh, verse one, worshiping God and sharing the gospel. These are two privileges that belong to you and me, worshiping God and sharing the gospel. Let's look at verse one. And it says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, loud him, all you peoples. So the psalm starts and ends with praise the Lord. Because praising the Lord should be a characteristic of every Christian today, like it was of the new Christians in the early church. We read in Acts 2.47, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They just, they just praise God. And when we praise the Lord, we're not only telling Him about His greatness, which we sang about just a little while ago, but we also brag about Him. To those who hear our songs, worship and praise are the highest works, the highest things that we can do with our voices for something that we're going to be doing for all eternity. Eternity is going to be one big worship session. Listen to Revelation 5, 8 through 14. Now when he had taken the scroll, that is speaking of Jesus, now when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Listen, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then John said, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. So man, if you aren't used to praising Him here, you better because you're going to be doing it for all eternity. The word praise means to be excitedly boastful about. To be excitedly boastful about. The word Gentiles here means all people except Jews. If, if they, if all, all, that, all people that aren't Jews are Gentiles. The word peoples here speaks of smaller groups of people of all races and all languages. 
And this is obviously still in the future. It's talking about the future when one day all nations, all races, and all languages, and all tribes on every continent and in every nation are going to join together to praise Jehovah God and will worship Him as the Lord. Now, do we see anything like this going on in our world today? No, we don't. Is there anything like that taking place in the world today? Do you see any evidence of this in our world today? Does it look like the world is turning to God today? No way. Instead, it's turning to many gods. Do you see any nations that are singing praises to Jehovah God, the true and living God today? Where are the nations who worship and adore him? Where are the nations that are in submission to him? The answer is easy. There are none. There are no nations today that we could truly say this about. So the message that the prophets had was that one day the nations would praise and worship the Lord Jehovah. Zechariah 2.11 says, Many nations shall be joined to the Lord, and in that day, and they shall become my people. Zechariah 14.16 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So it seems that worshiping, the worshiping of all nations is connected with the turning of Israel to God. Now, when will all of this be fulfilled? It's answered here in this short psalm, it seems to be anyway, when all of the nations praise Jehovah. Notice again what it says now in verse 2. It says, For His merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. And again, praise the Lord. So depending upon God's love and resting on his deliverance, these are the second two privileges that we have as God's people. Depending upon God, God's love, and resting on his deliverance. The word for means because. Because his merciful kindness is great towards us, it says. The word us speaks of Israel. The day is coming when God is going to be gracious to Israel. That day is still in the future. And it's at the end of the great tribulation period when the Lord comes to the earth for the second time and he sets up his kingdom. Then he's going to be gracious to Israel and to all the nations on the earth. At that time, Micah says this in Micah 7.20, and it's referring to God. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Then in Isaiah 54, 7 and 8, it says, for a mere moment, God says, I have forsaken you. But with great mercies, I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So you can see that this psalm refers to a future day when all of the nations are going to praise the Lord. Now, is there any subject, or I should say, is there any suggestion about this subject in the New Testament? There is. In Acts chapter 15, it records the meeting of the council at Jerusalem, which was made up of Jewish believers. And they couldn't understand why the prophecies of the Old Testament weren't being fulfilled. But at the end of that conference, James gets up and he says in Acts 15, 14, he says how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That's what God is doing today. He's taking a people for himself from among the Gentiles. The Jews rejected him. You don't want me? I'll go to the Gentiles. 
He's making up his church from all races, all tribes, and all languages, and he's bringing them together uh, and making them into one body. And then in Acts 15, uh, 15 through 17, James goes on. Listen to what he says. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I re- will rebuild its ruin and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. So as you can see. This psalm looks to the future when every creature on earth is going to praise God. We don't see this today. It's not true that the nations today are praising God. There's no evidence that everyone will turn to God. But the time is coming, the psalmist says in Psalm 67, 7, that God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. That day is coming. And Paul said, every knee is going to bow to me. And uh, God says, and every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God that Jesus Christ is Lord. The psalm will be fulfilled during the millennium. When Jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And not before this. And that is, that time is going to be a wonderful time. It will be a time of praise. It will be a time of praising God. The second thing that we need to notice about this psalm is the reason why the Gentiles, along with the Jews, are admonished to praise God. It's because of God's love. God's great love for us. Because it's a love, notice it says here, that endures forever. He loves us with an unfailing love. And verse 2 is based on the favorite passage of the Jews who were delivered from Egypt. And that passage is Exodus 34, 6. that says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Now, it wouldn't be true if we said that teaching about God's love isn't found in the earlier Psalms. Because it is. But it's highlighted only as we come to the end of the book of Psalms. And that's probably because love is the attribute of God that was mostly in the minds of the remnant that was chastened, you know, as they returned to Israel from their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. The Egyptian Hallel Psalm wouldn't, would, would have focused their thoughts on the greatness of the love of God because he had preserved them as a nation. He had taken care of them even though they had sinned greatly. And yet, if the Jews who returned from Babylon were aware of the greatness of God's love, how much more should we tonight be aware of the greatness of God's love? We, who have come to know His love through His atoning death of His Son, Christ. God's love is great, the psalmist said here. The word great means be stronger or to prevail. And the point is that God's love for His people, it prevails over. Or it's stronger than any obstacles, any circumstances, or any enemies that we could ever encounter. That's exactly what Paul meant in Romans 8, 35 and 39 when he said this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded, Paul said, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who can separate us from the love of God? The great truth, greater than all other truths, which are necessary to all the others, the truth to which all the revelations were designed to to lead and in which they end, is the truth that's described wonderfully in the life and the death of Christ, that God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God made his love known in creating man. And then he made his love known in the rich resources of, man, of, of man's world. The things that God provided for man for his purpose. Such, again, such extravagance. Think about it. Adam and Eve, which was God's uh, uh, original design and God's purpose for all of us was to live in the garden Adam and Eve were placed in a garden, think of it, that had nothing that would hurt them. And they had everything there that would bless them. And it was made known even more in man's redemption and in the rich resources of man's spiritual world. God prepared and provided for man with infinite tenderness. Jesus, the Bible says, is our great high priest. He gave us Christ. He gave us his word. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave us the power of prayer. And he did all of that so we could spend eternity with with Jesus. Also, what about love's hindrances? Can that separate us from the love of Christ? This love seems to have its obstacles. Even though God loves us with a great love, there are still obstacles. But will those obstacles interfere with accomplishing what God has planned for us? What are are, are some of those hindrances in, in God's love? Well, there's death in life. That's involved in God's love. Death wasn't some imaginary evil thing. It was never his original design. It was never his original purpose. But because of man's sin, death entered in. Now, death wasn't some imaginary evil then. Because as Paul tells us in Romans eight thirty six, that for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. In another place, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews nine twenty seven, it's appointed for men to die. It's not an accident. It's an appointment. Death is never an accident. Now we may hasten our death by doing things that are foolish, but God says, you know, again, it's appointed for men once to die. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul says, I die daily. This wasn't just idle talk. Because we know in reality, this was the end result of those who were witnesses for Christ. Many of them were killed. Also, life itself, as we know, is full of risks. Do those things separate us from the love of Christ? No. And maybe living is even harder. Living for Christ is even harder than martyrdom. And it's been said, it's easier to die for Jesus than to live for him. There's a lot of dangers and difficulties of circumstances and events. There's moral difficulties. There's a person's constant exposure to this world's attractions. We're exposed to the struggles and the difficulties. 
of trying to do well, continuing to do well. There's the allurements of temptation. There's, and, and we fall over and over and over again. And this is how life continually tests us, by our falling. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9, he says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. He said, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed, thank God. When life knocks us down, here's the thing. Do we get up again? And do we, as Paul, he said in Philippians 3.14, do we continue to press on? To, uh, do we keep pressing on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ, is calling us? See, Satan doesn't want us to, to finish the race. He doesn't want us to finish well. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. A righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. You see, the righteous man whose ruin was expected recovers himself. He gets back up and he brushes himself off and he keeps going. He falls seven times into trouble, the Proverbs tells us. But by the blessing of God upon God's wisdom and integrity, I mean, the man rises again. He brushes himself off. He sees through his troubles and he sees better days ahead. Why? He's looking at God and he's not looking at his problem. He's not looking at his circumstances. Solomon said the just man falls, sometimes maybe seven times into sin. Sins of weakness. Through the surprise of temptation, he may be tempted and he falls into that sin because of his weakness. But he rises again by repentance like David. Lord, I blew it. I messed up. I am sorry. And when, you, when he comes, when we come in true repentance to God, we will find mercy <clears throat> and we will get our peace back. Psalm 37, 23 through 24 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. What a wonderful you know, psalm that is. What a wonderful verse that is. Though he fall, notice, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Think of it. This is the good man's assurance. Even though you fall down, God won't keep you down. And understand, God's grace doesn't keep us from going down. But God's grace will save us from staying down. That's the important thing. Will angels and principalities separate us from the love of God? No. Ephesians 6 warns us that there are enormous spiritual forces and they're well organized and their whole purpose is to come against us, to work against us, to bring us down. We are a target. We are a goal of spiritual wickedness and powers working against us. And only God knows how strong and crafty they are. Can height and depth separate us from that wonderful love of God, that great love of God? No. 
in this life or of the spiritual life. It has its constant temptations. Even Paul said himself that he was in danger of being exalted above measure. Great depression or demotion also has its dangers. Rebellion or despair. Can things present and things to come separate us from the great love of God? No. Worry and fear. Worry and fear are often worse than actual physical battles because they are so emotionally draining. Worrying about today, worrying about tomorrow, worrying about this thing or that thing. Somebody said, so we may die a thousand deaths worrying about one. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, remember one is given strength to bear what happens to one, but not the 101 different things that might happen. We worry about so many things that might happen. So many things that we have no control over, and yet we'll worry about them. And people get all stressed out and they have nervous breakdowns and you know, they take all kinds of you know, anxiety drugs. Because they're worried about things they have no control over or things that might not even happen. Can any other created thing separate us from the love of God? Nope. Is there anything created or that can be created, as Paul said, that can separate us from the love of Jesus? No. God's love is victory for us. So shall these things, death and life, angels and principalities, height and depth, things present, things to come, any other created thing, can they separate us from God's love? Never. God's love is too strong. And the gifts that God has already given us, they're too great. And without a doubt, all those things mentioned in Romans 8, 35 through 39 are a part, they're a part of God's purpose working in our life. Remember that. And none of those things can break his love for us. All things, the Bible says in Romans 8, 28, all things, and that means all things, work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And even more so, if they're all a part of his working out his purpose in our life, they're at, they're, they'll, they'll actually serve us as ways to accomplish it. It's not, so not only will we conquer, but as Paul said, we will be more than conquerors. Because you see, whatever is against us will become for us. Evil shall be transformed to good and our enemies shall become unsuspecting friends. So you see, these verses give us one of the most comforting promises in the whole Bible. Believers have always had to face hardships in many ways. Through persecution, harassment, oppression, illness, imprisonments, even death. And sometimes these things cause them to be afraid that Jesus has abandoned them or he doesn't love them. But you see, to the contrary, his death for us is proof of his unconquerable love for us. Nothing can separate us from his presence. God tells us how great his love is so that we will feel totally secure in him. 
And if we believe these overwhelming assurances that Paul gave us in Romans 8, 30, uh, 8 35 through 39, then, then we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to be afraid. We're not going to be afraid. John 13, 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, knows, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I love that verse. Jesus knew the hour was coming, had come, that he was going to depart from this world and go to be with the Father. He knew he was getting ready to go on the cross. He knew that he was going to be crucified. He knew that he was going to experience a horrible death. And and he loved them to the end. He knew those closest to him. Imagine. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew that those closest to him would desert him at his time of greatest need. He knew Judas Iscariot would betray him. And yet he still loved them to the end. Can you imagine? Knowing all of this, he still loved them. The word truth in verse 2 also means steadfastness or to support with the arm or carry. Here it, means that, here it means that which is supported or that which is held up. So the word truth here came to mean firm or unshakable. Being faithful is one of God's characteristics. And in this verse, it's the faithfulness of God that's being mentioned here. And strictly speaking, in this verse... It's the faithfulness of God that endures forever and the love of God that is victorious. So we can say that the love of God endures forever and the faithfulness of God prevails. In closing, it's because God is the faithful God who doesn't lie when he speaks or waver in his commandments that his love prevails. And it's because his love doesn't waver that God can be trusted. The psalmist said, the truth of the Lord endures forever. You see, it was mercy, simple mercy to the Gentiles that the gospel was sent among them. It was merciful kindness, God's merciful kindness abounding towards them that, uh, above their, 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 you know, uh, their difficulties, above their deserts. And in the truth of the Lord, of his promise that he made to the fathers, that endures forever. Even though the Jews were hardened and they were expelled, yet the promise still was in effect. It still took its effect in the believing Gentiles, the spiritual seed of Abraham. You see, God's mercy is the source of all of our comforts. And it's his truth that's the foundation of all of our hopes. So both of, these things, both of these things, you know, we must praise the Lord. So can you say tonight, I have found that God's love is definitely great and it prevails and that his truth endures forever. Can we say that? If you can, then you will say like the psalmist at the end of the psalm here, praise the Lord. Father, thank you for this Beautiful little psalm, God. Thank you so much for the wonderful word that it brings to us, Lord. And Father, help us to learn from this short psalm, God. I know I said three verses earlier, but I really meant three three sentences there in the last verse of two. 
Father, I, th- I just thank you so much for your love and your grace. And Father, I pray that you would just minister to us through it, Lord. Father, that you would help us to learn it from Genesis to Revelation, all of your word, God. All of your word is important to us, God. And all of your word has something to say to us, Father. There's nothing in the Bible that's just fill in or to take up space. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. He wants to teach us. And maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. For whatever reason. Maybe you were brought up in some religion. Maybe you were taught that if you ever abandon your religion, you wouldn't go to heaven. Maybe you have your own preconceived notions and ideas about Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been listening to what the world has to say about Jesus Christ. Don't let hearsay and the lack of knowledge cause you to miss heaven, to spend eternity in hell. See, it's not religion that we're talking about. It's not church. It's Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Died for our sins, shed his blood, gave his life for mine and yours. You see, it's his blood that cleanses us from all sin. We've been bought, that is purchased, paid for by his blood. That's the truth of the gospel. It's what Jesus did for me and you. It's not what I can do for myself or you can do for yourself. It's not what anybody else can do for me. My religion can't do it. My family can't do it. Nobody can. My pastor can't do it. Your rabbi can't do it. Nobody can do it. Only Jesus Christ. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisle towards the steps up front. And I'll meet you there.